Hey there, jumping into the beginning of the podcast to just give a quick content warning. We don't usually do content warnings in the beginning of Polyamory Uncensored because we often don't record our intros before we have heard any of the podcast, but I'm recording this afterwards to just give a heads up to folks that we are going to talk about some sensitive issues, some of which include transphobia, uh, transmisia, which we explain what that is. If that one's new to you, it was for me, surgery, specific sex acts, genitals, trauma, slurs, and emotional abuse. Uh, That's not a total list of everything we talk about, but it is a lot of the things that I thought could be triggering. So just wanted to give a heads up to folks. If that is not something that you would be interested in hearing about today, then feel free to skip this episode. Take care of yourself in any way you need to. And if you do end up listening to the podcast, I hope you enjoy. Thanks. or polyam I really hold your head high let your freaky flag fly cause your polyamory should be uncensored Hi there and welcome to Polyamory Uncensored, a podcast where we, your hosts, Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams, interview a poly person each episode and we try to answer the five points of journalism. Who, what, when, where, and why as it pertains to our poly lives. So you're listening to episode 73, where we chat with Ildi. Stay tuned as we delve into the good, the bad, the ugly, and the just plain complicated truths about our poly lives. So, Ildi. Who are you? Um, thanks, Lindsay. So my name is Ildi Senescence. Um, probably the the most fun thing about my name is is how it came to be. So obviously, uh, being a trans woman, you know, I not obvious. <laughs> I've I've chosen a name um, that more appropriately suits me. Um, how I got there is kind of a big part of who I am. So I ended up picking it because of a D and D character. I couldn't think of a name. And so I looked in like the sample names list and, you know, some people use baby books, some people use, you know, whatever. And I saw Ildi and I was like, huh, I definitely pronounced it wrong in my head <laughs> and then decided I liked the sound of it. And um, many months later, so this, this would have been like February of 2019, back when we were doing in-person stuff. And I had, I had built a couple of different characters to experiment with names because it's an environment where you can play a different person, be called by a different name, use different pronouns. And it's really useful as, as somebody who's transgender to hear that in real time. So it's how, how my first name came to be. Uh, it comes from the same Nordic root as Hildi or uh, Ildur. There's, there's a Netflix show called Hilda. It's kind of a spiritual successor to Gravity Falls. So I've heard a lot of people calling me Ilda and I have to correct them uh, because again, I'm probably pronouncing it wrong, but it's how I chose to pronounce it. Um, meaning of it is battle, which works really well because I tend to do a lot of self-advocacy, part of why I'm here today. And then my last name, Senescence, is one that I've been kicking around for a while. I, I've been divorced twice. And I decided that if I got married again, I wanted, you know, my partner and I to choose a new last name for both of us, right? So like coming together to create something new, that, that kind of symbolism. And um, it's, it is the dictionary definition is the condition or process of deterioration with age. So kind of like aging, where like aging is cell decay over time. Um, <laughs> yeah. sen- senescence actually is 
how a cell progresses from like as early as like one or two cells when you're a zygote, right? Um, all the way through your life. So it's it's the idea of change. There's there's an interesting tie-in to, to the goddess Persephone. And again, I'm neurodivergent, so this is going to go all over this. <laughs> uh, so one of, one of the symbols of Persephone, Persephone, goddess of the underworld, queen of the underworld, um, one of the lesser known signs of hers is called, it, the best term for it is beautiful decay. So think like leaves changing color or bioluminescent fungus. Fungus is constantly in a state of decay. That's a a form of life, but it creates something that's pretty, right? And I like the sound of that. So, you know, I decided to use a scientific term for my last name. (laughs) That's cool. Awesome. Well, you kind of already touched on it a a little bit, but uh, how do you identify in general, uh, whether, you know, polyamory-wise, orientation, uh, what are are the labels you like? (laughs) So um, the the one-liner that I like to use on, on dating profiles is that I'm a polyunsaturated, gluten-free trans fat. Um, <laughs> the, the, the nickel tour version is that I'm a bisexual trans woman. Uh, my hair is also bisexual currently. Uh, I, have, nice. I have multicolored hair. Obviously, this is not a visual medium, but I have um, pink and purple and blue hair that is starting to fade to green at the ends, but we'll ignore that. Um, <laughs> it just looks more rainbowy. Right. For pride. Um, <laughs> The, the, you know, slightly more in-depth version is I am a demigirl, which is a non-binary identity. It's somebody who identifies as not fully femme, um, not necessarily mask as the rest of it. It could be somebody who identifies as a third gender, somebody who identifies as a gender, um, one word, not two. And it, it captures that you can have traits in common with a binary identity without being part of that. Um, as far as bisexual, like the, the deeper version of that is... Um, I am attracted to basically every non-binary person and woman that I meet and exactly Mads Mikkelsen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As far as other identities, I'm disabled. I have uh, multiple chronic conditions. I'm neurodivergent, um, multiple mental health conditions, and I have ADHD. Probably easy to tell by this point in the interview. I am an IT professional. I've been doing that for almost two decades now. I'm part of the Jewish diaspora. Uh, Please don't make every conversation you have with me about Israel. Uh, I, I'm, I'm very much against ethnostates, uh, and we're probably going to get comments on that. I'm an activist. Um, I, I've referred to myself as a professional pain in the ass, which I have lovingly stolen from Kaz Killjoy. Um, I'm a sex educator, and I'm a gamer. You know, as, as I referenced earlier, I play a lot of Dungeons & Dragons. Between 2017 and the beginning of the pandemic, I had run over 500 hours of organized play games for, uh, for Wizards of the Coast, for Dungeons & Dragons, uh, across local events, conventions, all sorts of... I'm, I, I contain multitudes. Yeah, absolutely. That was, that was a lot of labels, so yeah, for sure. <laughs> what does polyamory mean to you? I think... I think if I had to if I had to pick a specific definition, polyamory to me is about it's I, I feel like for for some people they see it as from their own perspective, right? Their their network, their polycule, their constellation, whatever. To me, polyamory is about a community that comes together and has similar ideas about openness, about love, about um, acceptance, um, inclusion, or even, you know, what's the I'm looking for a word. So like the the recent push to stop using the term ally and start using the term accomplice, especially around like anti-racism work, I'm looking for a similar difference um, for like inclusion versus 
insert word collaboration. I know I know that Cooper in episode 69 used the term uh, inv- inviting people as opposed to including fo- uh, people, like taking mm. an active effort. So maybe uh, an inviting community, especially to folks who are, you know, on on the margin. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's that's what polyamory means to me. It means community. So what drew you to polyamory? So polyamory, I guess the the when when did I start is the next question, right? So what drew me to polyamory is it it queers the redi- the traditional relationship structure, right? So monogamy is everywhere. Right, it's it's assumed, it's default, it's p- depicted in media, and polyamory kind of challenges everything that 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 loosely held idea of monogamy stands for. It breaks out the the nuclear family, which is a capitalist construct. It breaks out the heteronormativity. It breaks out of you know the the fetishization of jealousy, um, and it it just works for my brain. Uh, I I don't. I don't think that I can focus on one person long enough for, for them to be um, the only partner that I have for the rest of my life. And I also like to cuddle my friends. And that's like the, the, the 101 level answer. I also like the, the themes of love as an abundant resource, the different varieties of love from queer platonic or alterous to like the, the Greek terms for love, um, agape, love for everyone, uh, ludus, playful love, philia, love through friendship. Um, and I personally identify as relationship anarchist. And what, what appeals to me for that is the, the idea of continuous negotiation, the fact that consent isn't just important in a sexual context, it's also important in uh, interpersonal context. I like to use that framework to make sure I know where I stand. I don't, I don't love subtext. I don't love game. Um, I just, I don't get it. I feel like everyone else got issued a rule book that I was never handed. So that, that helps to keep towards direct communication and, and also the ability to be my own primary partner or even my own partner in general. You don't get a lot of that. What do you find difficult about pal- scheduling <laughs> distance? I mean, there's, there's the Google calendar joke, right? But I think, I think the hardest part is that people you're going to be in love with or, or have love for aren't always going to be accessible. And it's finding a way to connect with that person that, that works for everyone involved and recognizing that sometimes, no matter what you do, you can do everything quote unquote right and still fail. Thank you, Captain Picard. Um, and so I think, I think the, the, that idea of of the unjust, like the reverse of a just world fallacy, right? Where the the people who do well are are rewarded, the people who do poorly are punished. The fact that you can you can do everything basically right and still end up with a, a result you don't like. And uh, when did you know you were poly? So it's funny. So you have a lot to do with that. Funny enough. Um, oh, I love when people when I'm people's <laughs> origin stories. That happens a lot more than you would think, and it's weird. <laughs> I would imagine folks in this community and on this podcast, there's commonality there. <laughs> so my first experience with non-monogamy, and you'll note I'm not saying ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy, would have been in like mid-2000s. So I mentioned earlier, I've been divorced twice. Uh, my first marriage was basically where any hetero uh, appearing couple's first marriage will be when they tend to open up, which is failing. Um, and I basically got into an abusive dynamic where my partner at the time was using the the veil of non-monogamy to even be less honest than we had agreed on. 
which eventually led to the breakup and me realizing that, okay, but the parts of it that involved being emotionally and intellectually and physically in people resonated for me for the next 17 years. I So my second marriage was the longest period that I've been monogamous, uh, five years or so since since my first marriage. When that ended in 2017, not too long after, I, I was on OkCupid and I saw this um, this cute lady who seemed like she was talented, passionate, wrote well. Uh, so so we matched, and she told me all about the the community in Milwaukee, and and that would be Lindsay. And at the time, I was living in Green Bay, which. For those of you who are listening and somehow not living in Wisconsin, Green Bay to Milwaukee is about a two, two and a half hour drive. Yeah, so it's, when not, I would, it's not quick. Yeah, <laughs> it's not at all. And so I would I would come down to events and people would be like, who are you? Because it's not like I'm going to the to the polysocials every week. But it was it was nice. It was really a welcoming community and and helped kind of encourage me into learning learning about polyamory from a like academic standpoint. I get the academic and air quotes. You know, reading reading literature, listening to podcasts, um, all all that fun. You know, try before you buy stuff. I guess. <laughs> Yeah, and I would also say that like the the area of Milwaukee in Wisconsin is a little bit more liberal than the uh, than the rest of the state. You know, like it's kind of like a blue dot in a rather red state, and the Green Bay area going north a couple hours uh, is pretty red. So there's probably not too much, and I don't know for sure, but I did grow up in that area, and I know it was mostly Republican. There's probably not too much in the way of a poly community, unfortunately. There's a small community in Appleton. Um, or was in 2017-18, but I don't know their status now. They used to meet in a pizza place that used to be a cafe and then moved to a nightclub, and that's when I stopped going to their meetings. Lovely group overall, but it was kind of... It, it was a bunch of basically swinger couples who wanted a place to meet up. And I apologize to anyone who's currently part of that community who feels like that doesn't describe them now. Obviously, my disclaimer is this was two, three or four years ago. And I, I would slightly challenge that uh, Green Bay is red. I think it's actually green and yellow. <laughs> or green okay, and gold. So, yeah. <laughs> Packers joke for anyone who's not into football. Which <laughs> it did take me a second. I was like, what? No, that's not a, that, though there are, those are not political. No, green actually is, but uh, it's, there's no one that is uh, in the green party. Probably <laughs> it was a very Republican dominated sports filled city. Yes, for sure. Definitely. <laughs> okay. So here's, here's a good question. When, if ever, have you felt different from other folks? It's, so it's funny, like I've explored this question from a couple of, couple of different angles. Um, as, as far as from a polyamory standpoint, which, you know, focus the podcast, it would probably be after the breakup with my first wife when I still had that draw towards seeing multiple people and, and realizing that that's not something I saw reflected in my friend group. From like a trans non-binary standpoint, first time I was like nine I didn't know why I felt different. I didn't have words for it. It really took like a couple of therapy sessions for me to figure out that that was the first time. But I feel like I've had that feeling at times throughout. My so for anyone who's listening to this, uh, not immediately after it releases, um, it is the, the 5th of June. We're in Pride Month. And you know, as everyone who's part of the community knows, coming out is not a one-time process. And I've, I've come out many times in my life. Where are you in your poly journey? 
Um, can I steal Dora's answer and say the food court? <laughs> yes. So I'm referring to uh, Dora Diamond, who had an episode, or was the guest in May of 2020. Is that right? Yeah, it was a while ago. Maybe it was on, I don't know. It was so long ago. Yeah, I, I, remember, but, I remember she yeah, was talking you, you about might be right. pandemic stuff, I think. Okay, yeah, yeah. Gosh, oh my gosh. The whole year feels weird. Like, <laughs> it didn't happen. Yeah, okay. I mean, the, the pandemic has played a huge role in, in my poly journey and, and also my trans journey, right? Like, I feel like the last 15 months was like a pseudo larval stage. And, you know, I went from being somebody who was mostly mask presenting, um, really kind of dating one person with a couple of remote partners to in December, I, I came out very publicly as um, trans feminine. Um, I started actually dressing in femme clothes. Um, I had a, a breakup with my longtime partner and started actually actively dating. And I think I'm in that phase, like, like, I don't know if I'm a moth or a butterfly, but I'm still kind of trying to figure out how my wings work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, You're out of the chrysalis, but uh, <laughs> right, still gooey or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and in many ways, I almost feel like um, kind of how, I, I don't know how many other folks have, have talked about poly, polysecure recently, and I'll get back to that in a minute, but there's, there's a, a comment that Jessica Fern makes in the book about how um, how when a, re a relationship goes from monogamous to polyamorous, there's a lot of edges on which you can have new feelings that you're not used to. I feel like for a lot of the polyamorous community, having a nine to 15 month period, depending on when you start actually going outside again, of really close to one or less or slightly more partners creates a situation where you're kind of having to figure out how to do that again. And so I'm, I'm also in that stage where I'm, I'm trying to almost take my first poly steps again. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people, it, it is almost a, a re-coming out to a re-establishing re your poly identity. I know we in the Milwaukee community just recently had our very first social get together in person for the first time in since March of 2020. And the numbers here in Wisconsin have gone, have are as low as they were in March of 2020, right? So they like, it feels safer. Everyone, it was required to be vaccinated to show up. And so it felt safe, but it also still felt illegal. Like it felt wrong, you know, I'm like, oh, there's so many people and we're outside and everything, right? But like so many people around breathing and it's weird and I love it. It gives me like all these endorphins, but it feels so scary and wrong and, and, and just weird, just so weird. And so I feel like everyone is going to have to get used to this new normal. And what does that mean? And is it still going to be different for potentially, you know, a long time? Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really interesting, but it's getting better. There's a light at the end of the tunnel for sure. <laughs> right. Or we're nearing the end of the tunnel. I don't know. <laughs> Well, let's hope. Knock on wood. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I, you know, I almost liken it to the feeling of when you like sleep in a new place for the first time, where you're still kind of like vigilant for danger. You you don't really know what that you know, creaking sound is. Could it be a tree outside? Could it be a ghost? Like you know, <laughs> or could, a cat? Yeah, <laughs> or a cat, or like you know, an anti-masker, right? Like it could be anything. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you answered this with your question, but so usually we ask where, where are you in your poly journey and where do you hope to go? So do you have like a, a future goals for your journey? 
Yeah, actually, I have I have kind of um, well, I have short term goals and I have long term goals. The the short term goal I actually just came from before the podcast. I I did some walkthroughs um, looking at houses here in Milwaukee. Uh, so I currently live in Madison. So I'm one of the more remote, pseudo remote um, members of the Milwaukee Poly community. And you know, with all of these jobs becoming remote work or full time work from home, um, I don't need to stay in Madison. Like Madison's lovely. It I moved down from Green Bay to Madison to have legal protections as a trans woman and so I could be out at work. And, you know, I don't love being in Madison. There isn't a big poly community, despite what you might have meant. Or perhaps there is, and it's just a bunch of little poly communities that haven't come together. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. But, you know, I have connections with so many more people here in Milwaukee that I think the next step for me is living in a place because I want to be closer to the community in that place. And then long-term... Long term, I think my goal is to move some of my remote partners or move towards one of my remote partners or move one of my remote partners to me. I love them very much and I don't see them nearly enough. And I don't know how that's going to work logistically, but, you know, there's there's the the common joke of the poly commune. Mm-hmm. Why are you poly? It makes sense for my for my brain. I I mean, there's there's the, the common saying, right? No one can be everything. I very much need different things from different people. And different people are always going to mean different things to me. And polyamory lets me exercise that. And why did you agree to be interviewed today? So I'm not going to go too in-depth into this because I wanted to, you know, some of it's going to be after after the intermission. But there's, there's kind of a sentiment, a, a problem, a malaise, if you will, in the poly community at large, not necessarily Milwaukee specifically, but in general, um, it sucks being a trans woman in the poly community. It sucks being a trans woman and dating. Um, and, you know, recently there was an episode with some comments that were unseemly. Let's, uh, <laughs> I, I believe when I, when I first found out about them, um, somebody referred to them as cringe. And I think they went a little bit beyond cringe. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to come on the podcast is to kind of talk about my experience as a, as a trans woman community, to talk about transmisia, which transmisia and transphobia are often used um, interchangeably. They mean very different things. Phobia as the, the root means fear. Misia as the root means hostility. So I tend to use transmisia for things that are not necessarily the product of fear or really hostile. And, and I wanted to speak to that because I feel like well, Dora Diamond did a really good job covering this, and anyone who's listening to this should definitely listen to her episode as well, uh, or re-listen to it. I'm going to try and cover a little bit different ground if I can. Awesome. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Hey there. Interested in more polyamory uncensored content? You're in luck. We just started a blog, polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com. We're going to be showcasing stuff like episode breakdowns, polyamory and ethical non-monogamy related book reviews, and guest posts from authors like you. If you'd like to be a guest author, contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com, and you might be able to see your work up on our website. Again, that's polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com, and we're going to have some fun new poly-related content for you. Thanks. See you there. 
All right. And we are back again. We're talking to Ildi today and we're going to be talking about like trans issues in general. I didn't have a specific one topic because there's so much to cover today and, you know, we'll see how far we get. But trans issues and transphobia and transmisia in uh, in the polyamory communities in general. And I mean, just to start off a little bit about uh, kind of the, the catalyst of this is we recently had some, you know, problematic uh, things that were said kind of offhand and and maybe thoughtlessly. And Elde had brought that to my attention. I, I totally agree. We kind of dropped the ball on uh, calling it out in the moment because uh, neither Katie or I were really... Um, prepared as much as we should have been but but it brought up a really great conversation between ld and i and uh, about issues in the community and i was like you know we have talked about this a little bit on the on the podcast but not nearly enough and it's something that comes up a lot right like it just i see it in facebook groups i see it in person i see it on on dating profiles this like general exclusion of trans folks, especially trans women I've seen. And I really wanted to talk about that as well as like the OPP. If folks don't know what that is, we're definitely going to get into that. Unicorn hunting. Not the song. No, no, no. We're down with that OPP. That's fine. No. (laughs) Um, And, and fetishization in general. Uh, And so how do you want to start this off? How do you want to, how do you want to start this conversation off? (laughs) I'll, Um, I'll, I'll throw the ball in your court. I, I think I'm going to start off with a content warning. Um, oh, we're yeah, going to absolutely. cover some things that are likely to make people uncomfortable, most likely folks in privileged identities. So, you know, your typical cis, white, heterosexual, non-disabled males. Um, if you do hold any of those identities and feel like this isn't a conversation that you want to listen to, you have two options. Uh, one is get on Venmo and send every single trans person you interact with $50. And I will personally write you a letter uh, excusing you from the rest of this episode. The other <laughs> option is listen to it anyway. I will, it. I will try and call out specific things as they come up. And then I'll work with Lindsay if we need to edit a content warning in somewhere. Sure. And I honestly could potentially, and it's something I haven't done before, but I have seen other podcasts do this. And I do like, I like when they do it, especially like the Dildorks is a really great example. If they're talking about something like, um, so it's, it's a sexual education podcast where they bring up a lot of kink related stuff. And if they're talking about, you know, rape scenes in kink play or, you know, a negotiated consensual non-consent choking or things like that, that that might bring up some kind of trauma on folks. They do a content warning in the beginning of the podcast. And, and we haven't done that because mostly because we don't, um, we don't record the intros. So I never know what, unless it's about like the topic is specifically something that's triggering. I never know what we're going to, what's going to come up. So we haven't done that, but uh, it's so easy to just like throw a content warning in the beginning of an episode. And, and it's something that now, uh, since the episode did kind of trigger a number of people and they contacted me about it, you know, saying like, wow, this was upsetting in a way that um, I'm going to have to either not listen to the rest of the episode or I had to turn it off or I, or I had a lot of feelings and I want to talk about it. You know, that couple of people did come forward and talk about how upsetting some of the content was. And I didn't even think about putting a warning on that because we never have. Uh, and so going forward, I'm going to be a little bit more conscious about like, wait, if this could be something that should be warned about, I- I'm going to do that. And so, yeah, I think that this podcast would be a good one to start with. It's just, you know, like, hey, things are going to be uh, chatted about in this episode that may be upsetting to you. Fair warning. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and I think that that attitude and that response is a great example of transformative justice, which is really important in social spaces and community spaces. So I think I think that's a really good example for you to be setting for the rest of the community. So I applaud you for that. Okay. So let's just start with like dating in general, dating profiles in because I feel like that's a, that's how I date. That's the, the majority of of how a lot of poly folks date, because you can get all of the like set all your cards on the table and be like, Hey, I'm poly. I'm, this is, I, these are the labels I use. This is the kind of poly I do. This is the kind of identity I have all the identities that I have. It's very easy to do that online. Whereas like meeting folks at a bar just doesn't work that way. And so when it comes to online dating, I have noticed a lot of transphobic comments in that. I, it's interesting because I don't know if they know, you know, if they know what they're saying is messed up, or if they're just totally unaware because it's new to them or totally different, I, I don't know, or they're just like uneducated in that sense. But I don't know if you could speak to some of the things that you've seen in like on dating profiles or uh, in like the poly dating communities that people should maybe watch out for on their own profiles. Like, hey, this kind of thing is not okay. You might not know that, but it's not cool. Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think, uh, so I didn't want to interrupt you, but I feel like that's a really idealistic view of dating profiles, because in my experience, regardless of gender or identity, uh, I get about 30% of the people that I match with that have actually read my dating profile. Fair, <laughs> so yes, right. It, yeah, in, most some ways it is still, in some ways, it is still very much like, you know, meeting up at a bar. I feel like I feel like my relationships that have started from Twitter have a better chance of knowing who I am than than a dating profile, but it might be just a small sample size. Um, so I feel like I'm gonna I'm gonna answer it in part first, and then probably come back to you for the rest of the question again. Um, so like do's and don'ts for your dating profile and how you interact with people. I feel like you know there's there's a couple of cliches that you see on dating sites. You see, oh, I'm just exploring my bisexual side. I want to, you know, meet up with a woman. My husband won't be involved, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, or, you know, we're looking for a third unicorn hunting or, you know, those kinds of practices can be problematic in and of themselves. And I'll come back to that. But sometimes the wording that's used can be insidiously transmisic. And what I mean by that is, um, when people use female as a noun, when referring to humans, right? The, the name for female human is woman, right? If, you're, if you want to cosplay a Ferengi, that's up to you, but you probably shouldn't expose the rest of us to it. Um, also, using like femme to mean assigned female at birth is about as transparent as it gets. So don't do it. I mean, I guess at the one-on-one level, treat trans women like women. Don't break them out separately. Don't like say, oh yeah, I date women and trans women. Right. Much a direct quote from, from Dora's episode. You know, if you identify as heterosexual, don't make statements like, I don't know what attracts me to trans women. Well, what wouldn't attract you to trans women, right? That's that's what that brings up. And there isn't really an answer that, you know, doesn't come back to genitals. Mm -hmm. Um and and that's that's problematic for a lot of reasons. It's it's fetishizing. It's uh, reducing a person to the genitals you assume they have, right? Because you don't know. Um, it's 
it's dishonest, right? Like it's, there's a lot of discourse around not dating trans folks as a preference. And it's usually put forward by, um, let's call them uh, disingenuous radical folks. I don't want to use the acronym <laughs> just in case that causes negative things here. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of like trying to assert that you have a preference for uh, for somebody of a certain ethnic background, right? right? There is something inherently wrong with it because you are making not only assumptions about the person that you're talking about, but treating that group like a monolith. That, mm-hmm. that you know, not only can you decide that everyone has these characteristics, but you have also decided to evaluate every single individual on the merits of your idea of what that's like. So to kind of get back to the, to the like unicorn hunting slash women don't count aspect. Um, I think, I think that, you know, that's something that you see as, as a cliche, as a trope. And most of the time they don't mean trans women and it's not said explicitly, but it usually becomes clear in the first couple of messages, right? Whether it's somebody straight up asking, hey, what's between your legs? And usually less politely than that. Mm-hmm. Um, or have you had the surgery? Which, you know, whatever, if I could find one surgery that does everything that I want, I'd sign me up. Right. <laughs> There's not one. <laughs> right? Like, tur- turn me into a shapeshifter. Give me a magic gender slide rule. Whatever, whatever you got, I will, I will take the one procedure and never have to do it again. Um, you know, it just doesn't work that way. It's also rude. It's also invasive. And it's not yeah. something that you would ask a cis woman. Right. right? And I'm going to ask them their medical history in the first question. Like, that's not Right, exactly. Yeah. Like, it, if you wouldn't ask a cis woman, what does your vulva look like? Right. As the first question you're asking, mm-hmm. you should. How long are your have... labia? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That is fucked up. You would you would think, yeah. And, and and if you got that question, or even if I were to say in the first question, how big is your dick? Give me an exact measurement. I need to know this. You probably, you know, some cis heads might not feel like the, the same way, but you'd probably be a little put off by that or a little uh, offended by that. But that's essentially the same type of question is, is, is what are your genitals? I need to know. And it's like, yikes, fucking yikes. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, to be fair, when they ask that first, it's really helpful for me because I know <laughs> right. they're never getting anywhere near my genitals. Right. Right. So for they sure. do kind of like self-select out of being my problem. Um, but yeah, it's, it sucks. It sucks a lot. Yeah, Absolutely. And I have heard that from a lot of folks who, like you said, disingenuous, maybe don't or uneducated, don't really know quite what they're talking about yet and are trying to feel it out, trying to get educated by by asking uh, the difference between a preference for a sex or gender, right? Because a lot of times they're conflated as being the same thing when they're not um, versus a a phobia or a, uh, you know, um, a hostility towards, or, uh, you know, like, and, and there are so many people in the community who are just like, you can't tell me what my preference should be. And as someone who's bi or pan or whatever, I, I'm just, it, it never was an issue. It never has been an issue for me because I am attracted to kind of everyone on this, not everyone, but I'm attracted to a lot of folks on the spectrum of different, uh, different places on the spectrum, right? So for me, it's not, you know, genitals don't take a big 
part of like who I see as a person and how I'm attracted to them. So it's hard for me to even put myself in the position of thinking, well, I could only like X or Y, you know, like I, I will only be attracted to this uh, genital, right? Like, um, but that's the argument that I hear so often, especially from cis men. They're like, I don't want to deal with a penis and therefore you don't get the right to tell me what I should and should be attracted to. And that's tr- true, right? I, I'm not going to tell you, you should. But um, I don't know. I've never had a good response to being like, okay, because no, you don't have to, you don't have to ever suck a dick if you don't want to, <laughs> right? But uh, no, no one's going to hold a gun to anyone's head. And force yeah, them, no, right? that's not a thing. That's not a thing. But to say all folks with penises are unattractive to me doesn't make sense, right? Technically speaking, you don't know. You don't know. So how can you just say that? I feel like there's a couple of things that I want to respond to in there. So let's let's start with don't ever want to suck a dick, right? Because, um, <laughs> you know, it's a fine place to start. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when you look anatomically at the difference between a clitoris and a penis, there are so many similarities. Absolutely. And they become, they become way more obvious if you've ever dated a trans man who's been on hormones, who has uh, clitoris growth. It becomes very obvious that those structures are basically mirroring each other, right? So these same people who are saying, I never want to suck a dick. I mean, maybe if they don't do oral on anyone, then I can understand that. But if you're willing to go down on a partner that you're attracted to and your attraction is based on your partner being a man, a woman, non-binary, whatever, asterisk, if you're attracted to only non-binary people, you're probably a chaser and you're gross. Um, however, uh, if, if you're likely to be sexual with someone you're attracted to and your attraction is, is in any way influenced by gender, it shouldn't matter what the person of that gender has in their pants. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I also, I wanted to bring up a little bit that like intersex folks exist and they're so often forgotten and erased out of this conversation, right? That people with genitals who might not align, the genitals themselves might not align with what you would assume a vulva or a penis to look like or present, right? That those folks exist and they're a lot more common than I think people talk about, right? Um, And so to say... I don't like dicks or whatever. I don't want to be with someone with a dick uh, is like forgetting that there's more than just two options. Yeah. And, you know, there's been a lot of um, gender critical conversation. I I use that term pejoratively because it is pejorative um, around what sex is, right? Because sex is not a binary by any mm-hmm. means. And, and you can find countless examples on Twitter of people who have like actual PhDs and have done research in the field talking about how sex is a spectrum, not just gender, actual like horm- uh, hormonal profiles or genetic profiles or, you know, secondary sex characteristics, your configuration, whatever you've got. And, you know, like intersex isn't even necessarily specifically about genitals. It can also be about secondary sex characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, there are folks who champion having folks who have PCOS on the intersex spectrum because of the hormone makeup. Um, there's there's a lot of biological variation 
to the point where it's kind of difficult to write down a list of here's the list of characteristics that the check boxes you have to check off in order to qualify as this particular sex. I mean, there's probably a line somewhere. I'm not smart enough to draw it. And I don't know if I would want to, if I could. Right. I kind of want to come back to the sucking dick question. Uh, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I feel like, I feel like this question often centers around um, cishet men, but mm-hmm. I've also been rejected by cis lesbians who don't yeah. want to interact with anyone who has genitals that resemble a penis uh, unless it goes into a harness. Right. Like, and, and I feel like that's kind of, swept under the rug in in favor of making sure we're calling out the most privileged people in the room um but it is it is not by any means unique to to cishet men yeah no absolutely i mean turf uh is a is a term that gets talked about a lot in the community um and maybe isn't quite well known and just to to let people know uh if you haven't heard the term turf is stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist and radical feminist sounds cool but it's not it's actually <laughs> right it's uh it, it's actually very it's it's a commonly used term especially in like trans inclusive spaces to mean folks who identify as feminists and oftentimes in the lesbian community or you know kind of aligning around the lesbian community who do not believe that trans women are women and who believe some weird almost conspiracy theory that they are men folk who are trying to infiltrate feminist lesbian communities because i don't know nefarious whatever uh who knows what um it's it's kind of it's kind of similar to the bathroom argument right yes, like it's right. it's projecting the bad behavior of cis men onto trans women yeah, yeah, that they are trying to come in and rape, pillage, and 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 take away, all, almost in like a they're appropriating uh, being a woman, and so so turfs, so that kind of person is what we call a turf, and they dominate a lot of the discourse, especially like Twitter and 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 I think it's getting a little bit better, obviously with time, but especially in the nineties feminist and lesbian spaces were like run by TERFs. And that became very problematic. A lot of these spaces ended up closing down because of it. You know, um, Mishfest, which is a music festival in Michigan, was a like kind of TERF dominated lesbian community space. And a lot of people love that space. And it's really sad that it that it it went away, but it had to go away basically because it was just too problematic to exist anymore in this you know, kind of, uh, we're third wave feminists. I don't know. We're uh, inclusive and um, intersectional. Yes. As we are becoming more intersectional feminists, which are uh, uh, more inclusive spaces that are run by TERFs are closing down and being canceled left and right, which is great, which is a good thing. Yes. But um, they still exist. To to be fair, Something is only canceled if it comes from the cancel region of France. Otherwise, it's just sparkling consequences for your actions. <laughs> right. And people are upset about getting uh, about having consequences for their actions. That that is a thing that will continue forever, unfortunately. But I mean, so so getting back to folks who I don't know is there's this thing that I don't know if I've heard it or if I just like made it up in my head, but like genital essentialism where they're like you are nothing more than your genitals and will always only be your genitals and it's so just kind of like reductive it's really squicky oh totally 100 <laughs> like, percent. 
but it's also just so ridiculous. I, some people have really, really strong feelings about this, right? But it's on, I, like, just face value. It's so, it seems so silly to just think, like, you are nothing more than what is between your legs. Like, obviously, people are more than what's between their legs. Obviously, people are, have, you know, thoughts and feelings and, and are, so much more than a tiny percentage or you know i'm not gonna say tiny maybe not maybe that's like whatever but like a smaller portion of their body than anything else really and and definitely smaller than their brain (laughs) so uh the most important sex organ yes right so yeah i don't know i'm rambling now no that's fine honestly i like pretty much all the, or not pretty much. I like all the points you're making. Um, and they actually, I, I took notes this time so that they don't like fly out of my head. Oh, good. Um, so there's a couple items. Um, while you were talking about the, the gender essentialism, right? Um, so it's almost like an advanced form of gender essentialism, which itself kind of draws from like traditional gender roles, right? Mm-hmm. Where your, your cishet man goes out into the world in a suit and earns the bread while, you know, your, your cishet wife and 2.3 children are at home. She is barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. And, you know, all of that, like, 50s hopeless housewife nonsense, mm-hmm. right? That kind of plays, that, that's kind of the basis of gender essentialism. It's trying to boil individuals that are very complex, like most humans, uh, down to a number of listable characteristics. If you'll remember earlier, I don't think that list actually exists. And Mm -hmm. if it could, it probably shouldn't. Um, But I think we have to also examine the feminist, like, implications of reducing somebody to their genitals, right? Because if TERFs want to say, well, trans women aren't women because all women have vulvas, all women have vaginas, ovaries, uteri, whatever, whatever body part you want to qualify that on, well, I mean, doesn't that do exactly what you don't want to do, which is reducing other feminists to their sex organs? Doesn't that make them less of a full person? Isn't part of feminism celebrating women however they want to express themselves, whether it's um, sex positive, sex negative, sex neutral, you know, or joining the workforce, staying at home, being an activist, being a pacifist? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a contradiction, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's looking to, it's, it's undermining your own point in order to exclude a group. And that takes me to another item that I had written down. So I feel like there's an interesting parallel to the, like, the, the turf argument and the cis-lesbian argument and the cis-hat man argument around trans women in that, all, you know, all of their quote-unquote preferences are based around, you know, we've hinted at this before or said, said, said this before, that trans women are in fact women, but their treatment by these groups is based, is predicated on trans women being men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that, that makes a similarity between the cis-lesbian, like, I have a preference not for penises or things that look like penises, and the cis-het men having the same situation, right? But for very opposite reasons. Because the cishet man, if he sees a trans woman as a man, there's also a level of homophobia there, right? Because they want to distinguish themselves as, oh, I'm, I'm heterosexual. I have sex with real women, right? right? And, you know, a lot of that is cultural and that sucks. 
Um, and on the other side of the equation, you have cis lesbians who don't want to have a, have sex for, with a man because they don't want to be seen as straight. Yeah. So is heterophobia they... a thing? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> basically, kind of. <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting one. Anyway, but like that that also kind of plays into into a term in the lesbian community that is itself also transmissive, which is uh, if you've ever heard the term gold star lesbian. I have. Yeah. Um. So colloquially it's referred to a lesbian who has never had sex with a man mm-hmm. um in practice it's a lesbian who has never had sex with somebody whose genitals resemble a penis mm-hmm. or like um, been penetrated you know with a, anything right. yeah mm-hmm. anything that's not made of like lacquered wood glass silicone silicone <laughs> right yes <laughs> yeah and I remember, um, so I went to a like LGBTQ conference my first year of college, and I did not start dating until later in life, whatever. But uh, so I was still a virgin. And I, I went to this LGBTQ conference, and I was speaking to a lot of lesbians. And a lot of them were very proud about being gold star lesbians. They had, you know, it was like a badge of honor. And I remember being sitting there listening to them talk about never having been with someone they, you know, identified as male and then like thinking to myself am i a platinum queer uh platinum star queer i've never been with anyone i haven't done anything it's just shit what does that make me uh and yeah and it was really interesting because it was the first time i'd ever heard it and they all were really proud of it but what was also kind of like sad was we were in a circle of folks and i'm sure it ostracized numerous people who weren't quote unquote gold star who did experiment with other people or you know or who did you know there were people there who were married for years before coming out um and does that make them less does it make them it's almost this like weird like it makes them dirty you know like this mentality that you're you're not perfect you're you are you have been fucked by a guy and therefore like what does that make that's that's kind of like that's kind of like buying into the whole virginity like yeah virginity construct to begin with, right? It's, yeah. it's, that, it's that idea that you possess this purity about you that is lost the first time you have intercourse with someone with a, a penis, right? Like, right. and that's very much not the case. Right. Like, it's made up. It's a social it, contract. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's totally yeah, it's, ridiculous. So it's a really gross social construct that comes from like religious origins where people feel like they have the right to their, to control their children's bodies in most, in most cases. But yeah. that's, that's a that's a topic for a much longer podcast episode, <laughs> right? But the, just that you're ruined by sex, or that you're right. made dirty, or that you're made, uh, that, or that somehow your genitals have been affected because they've been penetrated, and it's so it's so stupid. I mean, it's, it's stupid, right? It's just stupid, but it's also just really fucked up, and and it's uh, again seen as like a badge of honor in some lesbian communities, and that's it's it feels almost religious. <laughs> Like, I'm like, this is weird, well, I mean, you guys. It's, it's the very, at the very least, it's dogmatic, right? You have, I mean, dogma is one of the three pillars of religion. And so, like, to give folks a little bit of history that don't have an understanding of radical feminism, there is a logical, not ethical, but logical basis for some of these positions, right? So a lot of second and third wave feminism, especially radical feminism, dealt with power imbalance and how possible is consent in a society where you have folks who are unequal based on their identity, right? Can a cis woman actually consent to a cis man? 
does she have the same agency that he does? Are they, you know, do they have the same considerations? Are they getting equitable things out of that interaction? And that kind of forms the basis of this whole thought chain of, you know, trying to divorce women from men in in language, right? People who use women with a Y or women with an X, which is more recent that was started to be less turfy than women with a Y and was then co-opted by turfs anyway. Right. <laughs> thank, thank you, turfs from the UK. We appreciate that. Not at all. Please, please yeet yourselves into the sun. Um, and so you can kind of follow that train of thought of, of wanting to claim spaces and wanting to build like almost like cultural bunkers where, where men aren't allowed. But the problem is you end up crowding out people that you really shouldn't because you, you are adhering to a, an, uh, an ignorant mindset. Mm-hmm. And that actually brings me to one of the notes that I have. So um, we've talked a couple of times about like motivation for people when they have problematic comments where do they not know? Do they, have they not been exposed? Are they doing it on purpose? And I feel like, at least for me anyway, I mentioned earlier about allies versus accomplices, right? We need, uh, this is a conversation that comes up a lot in anti-racist work. I don't want to co-opt it from there. I'm going to give it credit that, you know, Black Lives Matter is probably the place where most people have heard this before or should have heard this before. And definitely this is a kind of practice that you need to to do in any social justice work you do. Um, But really around LGBT issues, we need to go past love is love, love wins, trans women are women. Like, yes, these are fundamentally correct. These are factual statements. They are not where the conversation ends by any means. Mm -hmm. We need people who are not just there to not be exclusionary to us. We need people to advocate on our behalf because the people who think that we're not real people, the people who think that we don't count, aren't going to listen to us when we advocate for ourselves. They're going to listen to people who look and sound and seem like them. Like them, Mm -hmm. for sure. And, you know, as far as the ignorance piece, there is a massive amount of privilege that goes into being able to be ignorant of marginalized identities in the year of our Lord, 2021. <laughs> right, yes. Right? This, this isn't 2002, right, where if somebody within a five-foot radius of you doesn't know something, you just don't know it ever, right? right. We, have, we have literal supercomputers in our pockets that can give us access to the combined knowledge of an entire planet, right? Mm-hmm. Google is right there, I promise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And, and so I think, I think one of the reasons why it's important to, to be an accomplice is you know, you're, you're able to meet these people where they are because for them to accept these kinds of things from the group that they're harming, they have to have an understanding that they very obviously don't have yet. Mm-hmm. And the converse of that is it's like if, you know, if a friend tells a problematic joke that's kind of like eh, iffy, like on the border, if you say something, they know, oh, okay, that's not, that's not okay. Cool. They're embarrassed for a minute. You figure it out later. If you don't say something, one of two things happens. One, they think, okay, well, this is now an okay subject for me to talk about. Uh, or two, they're testing the borders of what they can get away with, and they want to escalate from there. And 
I'm not particularly proud of this part, but I was not always a social justice illusionist. I, I believe in balanced parties. We shouldn't all be warriors. I was not always socially just or a zealot or even a feminist. I, I went through a really embarrassing period from like puberty to like age 26, where I grew up with 4chan and Reddit and didn't understand that, you know, ironic bigotry is still bigotry. Casual bigotry is still bigotry. And so it really took having somebody challenge my idea of myself for me to have that light bulb moment of, oh, the things that I'm doing are not okay. I need to learn to do better. And so you never know when confronting one of your friends on something problematic that they're doing is going to give them that moment. Right. Absolutely. And I I heard somebody um, a long time ago talk about it as like planting a seed, because if you confront someone, especially if it's kind of in a angry way, right, they probably will shut down. They probably won't respond in a way that's constructive. They they might get defensive. They might try to uh, justify whatever happened, their action or, or behavior or what they said. And, or they might, like we see so often on Twitter or, you know, in public, it's, well, it was a joke. You can't take a joke, whatever. That, that's on you. Right. And typically um, jokes are funny. Right. 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 Um, and so oftentimes people will just kind of like disregard it, but it may plant a seed that grows within them. And over time they start to recognize, oh, wow this isn't cool. This is not good behavior and I should change. And, and so you never know when one, it's going to be the catalyst for them to stop doing that kind of shit and, and recognize that what they're doing is wrong, but it also might be planting the seed that will grow into, Oh, recognizing, recognizing and acknowledging that what they're doing is not okay. So the, I just, yeah. So you might not make an impact at that exact moment, but you're, your behavior may make an impact eventually. So it's always good, right? It's always best practice. And, and your audience isn't just that person either, right? A right. lot of the time, the person that you confront isn't somebody that you're going to convert. And that's fine because there are bystanders too. Mm-hmm. And if you have somebody who's a bystander who also holds those beliefs, you have to consider the impact of saying nothing. Because when you say nothing, it implies there's there's this implicit, uh, what's the what's the... What's the term? Um, in in areas of injustice, neutrality favors the status quo, or something something mm-hmm. along those lines, mm-hmm. right? If you if you don't speak up in the face of problematic content, not only does that silent person who may also hold those beliefs know the person who made the joke is a safe person to be a bigot around, they also think you are too. You're a bigot, yeah, absolutely. And, and flipping that on the other side, right? Even if you're not going to convert the, the person you're confronting and, and nobody should feel obligated to do the emotional labor of providing free education to bigots, um, I, I would prefer, you know, hit them with sticks. I don't know. <laughs> um, but it is an opportunity to present an argument opposing theirs that may convince people that don't have a strongly formed opinion, don't have a strongly held opinion. And, you know, um, something you touched on of, you know, people tend to dig in when their closely held beliefs are challenged. That is scientifically proven. Um, yeah. You know, just look as close as, you know, two elections ago. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's, oh God, now I can't remember the name, but okay. So um, anyone who's, who's ever heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so for anyone who hasn't heard, it's, or who doesn't know, it's basically this like 
cup and handle bell curve. I don't know why I'm tracing this as if this is a visual medium. Uh, <laughs> this this like cup and handle bell curve that that shows that the more um, the more proficient somebody is in a particular field, the more the more they know about something, the less confident that they are that they know about that field. And that that really makes sense to folks who don't want to delve into the scientific side of it, because the more you learn about something, the more questions come up, the more right. nuance, the more minutia of things that you just know that you don't know. Exactly. But the opposite end of that spectrum is the people who don't know almost anything act as if they are experts in the field. Yeah. So a lot of these folks, especially in, you know, government officials, people who don't know anything about trans issues and who are literally making laws about it because they think that they know better because they think they know anything and they don't. And it's, yeah. Ridiculous. Absolutely right. Ah, so that was heavy. <laughs> it was a little bit. Let's, let's, well, I don't know if there's anything that's not going to be heavy that we're going to touch on today, but let's talk about the OPP because yes. there are a lot of people who don't understand when folks call it out as transphobic, why? And there are a couple of reasons, right? And I think we can kind of delve into that a little bit, but just to start off, what is the OPP? Uh, so the, the OPP is, is the one penis policy. It's where usually the person at the top of the hierarchy in a relationship states that each member of the relationship can only have one penis factory installed. If you have two penises or five penises or 25 penises on your body, you know, you're just not allowed to be in the relationship. <laughs> I'm kidding. The one penis policy is uh, it's, it's a rule that almost functions like a recurring veto, uh, which I, I believe we've probably defined veto on this show before, but yeah. anyone who doesn't know and is listening to this episode is their first introduction. Um, a veto is where one member of a relationship, usually a quote-unquote primary relationship, tells the other member, no, you can't insert activity here, whether it's sleep with that person, kiss that person, hold hands with that person, whatever. Uh, the one penis policy basically says, you know, I, my, my cishet maleness um, I'm, I'm okay with my uh, cishet female partner having relationships with women or folks who have, have vaginas and vulvas, but I am threatened by other people's penises, so they can't have any of those anywhere near them. Assuming, of course. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, this uh, policy is often assuming women have vulvas and men have penises, and therefore, uh, because women are not threatening to heterosexual relationships, and I'm saying that as their belief system, um, and that oftentimes a bisexual partner is not going to leave you for a woman in the same way that they might leave you for a man. Uh, that Often that, they should, though. <laughs> <laughs> right. That uh, relationships with women are quote-unquote safe and therefore fine, and relationships with men are quote-unquote scary and not fine. Uh, and that women don't have penises. And so it's um, when we say the OPP is transphobic, it's because you are essentially assuming that that one penis policy means that only your male partner has a penis and only your male partner is allowed to have a penis. It's um, and that just that like trans men and trans women don't exist, basically, or that they are not factored into this equation and that they are not... And, and they're not the gender that they're presenting. And that the they're world, not. Right? They're, they're not real, right? Yeah. So they're not real men and women. Like um, tra trans men are rarely, in my experience, excluded from a relationship because of an OPP. Right. Even though 
they are men and that is generally what the rule means don't date men but oh well yeah trans men are okay because they're not men basically i mean they're they're diet women right they're not they're not actually (laughs) no i'm i'm very much kidding that is not a belief that is held by myself or anyone else on the podcast no (laughs) not no but and so often bringing that up um ends up being a whole like class on what is gender to folks who believe in the OPP and who practice the OPP is, is like, well, I don't understand. Or, or then there's like sometimes this argument of, well, we don't date trans people anyway. So that's not an issue. And it's like, what that do you, how do you know? You know, like, like what? Right, yeah. Draw, draw me a picture of a trans person. Describe right. to you what trans people look like. I mean, most of us keep our horns and our tail in the closet at home, you know, only wearing them to formal events. So <laughs> it's really kind of hard to pick us out in the wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's the, um, the glowing purple aura, but not right. everyone can see it, you know? <laughs> That's true. That's true. And especially like, uh, what is, what is this, what's the statistic? Um, cis men have a higher incidence of uh, the, the rods and cones in their eyes only seeing like 16 or 256 colors, like, you know, 50s television sets. So, you know, they could just not be able to see purple at all. <laughs> well, and when it comes to these type of folks, it's often in a unicorn hunting situation. Uh, and so there's a lot of problem, and we've talked about that a bit on the podcast before, that there's a lot of problematic things that happen when unicorn hunters are, you know, at the wheel. Um, but on the opposite spectrum, I guess, of this problematic, yeah, the behaviors is uh, unicorn hunters literally seeking out trans women. Uh, it's usually trans women, though I guess it's absolutely possible that for them to uh, fetishize trans men, you know, that happens too, but it's often trans women that folks are seeking out. And I think that those folks sometimes don't see an issue with it because they're like, oh, but I want, I like trans women. I love trans women. I want, I'm attracted to them. I want to see, um, you know, what it would be like to date a trans woman or a trans woman. So what could possibly be the issue with seeking that out? And that, it brings up this issue called fetishizing, fetishization, which is hard to say. It's a mouthful, um, <laughs> but, and it's, it is hard. I mean, and I guess, you know, me from a, a privileged cis perspective, it's hard for me to even describe how that's fucked up, except to, except to uh, liken it to saying, I want to date a black person, or I want to date an Asian woman, or I want to, uh, I want to have sex with, you know, insert whatever minority, uh, you know, uh, and how bad that sounds. It's the same with trans women. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, Obviously, these are not the exact same experiences, because they different axes of oppression manifest differently. There's different history around it. I, I would never want to imply that these things are the same. They are similar experiences because they have common roots and common manifestations, right? Um, to me, the way that I would describe fetishization is it's objectification plus power imbalance, mm-hmm. right? So it's it's reducing a trans person to their genitals, right? right? Just very similar to how we said before, you know, a cishet man who fetishizes trans women, at least in my experience, is looking to get pegged and doesn't want a woman to wear a strap on, right? Mm. Like, is looking to confront feelings that they have and don't know how to express 
and want to do it in a way that feels safe to them, um, which is really awful for a lot of reasons, uh, not, not the least of which being hormones tend to make it pretty impossible to do that. Um, but like fetishization is just, it's so, it's so um, insidious, right? Because like, it can be it can be as simple as like the, the comment that I brought up earlier, right? I don't know why I'm attracted to trans women, despite being somebody who's heterosexual. That you can infer that they're thinking about very particular characteristics, uh, likely physical characteristics, um, you know, or having having trans women, as as Dora Diamond said, having trans women be you know something some an experience to cross off their bucket list i believe i believe she said or that uh you know they want to be ash ketchum and just like sleep with every combination that they can um and it just it makes an individual into a much smaller version of themselves and discards everything that makes them have autonomy makes them have agency and it it's unfair (laughs) Like on its on its very basic level, it's unfair. It makes people not people anymore. It depersonalizes people you're ostensibly trying to be intimate with. Mm-hmm. And I know the only like experience that I've had with it was when I was pregnant, um, and I did I decided uh, that I was not going to date while pregnant, but I was still kind of on. I didn't like shut my OkCupid profile down or anything. I just said like, Hey, I'm on a break. Um, having a baby, not, I'm not interested in dating right now. And, um, during that time period though, I got multiple messages from folks who specifically wanted to have sex with a pregnant body, which felt so gross. And one of the, you know, like I had multiple reasons of why I did not want to date while pregnant, but one of them was either like the two choices of folks who would be interested in dating a pregnant woman are either um, into it only because I'm pregnant. And then what happens when I have a baby or, um, or there were a lot of people who were like, I am not interested in dating someone who's pregnant because I think it's gross, which I'm like, okay, well, that's also kind of gross. Like what the fuck? (laughs) And so, so those were the kind of folks that I came across while pregnant. And I was like, okay, I don't, I don't like either of these options at all. So I'm just not going to go that I'm just going to take a break. I'm, I'm going to be functionally monogamous for a bit. Um, and it worked out well for me. I did. I was, I'm glad I didn't try to date while pregnant, but it was a really weird and gross feeling to get these messages of folks who were like, oh, well, I've never had this experience before. And now that you are this, I'd like to use your body for my, a checklist of that I have, you know, it's like, it just felt so gross. And I judged those people a lot, you know, (laughs) like, um, and, but that, uh, but that's probably the closest I've come to like having to deal with that. And it was such a short period of time, right. It was only when I was like visibly pregnant. So probably four months of my entire life. And then I think the only other thing that's comes even sort of close to that is like being sort of fat. Cause I'm not fat in the like activist fat, the kind of like uh, identity, but I'm small. Lane Bryant fat maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I I hear that. I hear that term bandied about. Uh, Yeah. Like torrid size zero fat, you know, like I'm, uh, I'm, I'm not quite there. (laughs) As as a torrid size two or three, I feel attacked. (laughs) 
Right. So like, um, but being in a body that is not thin or tiny, whatever, there have been times in which people have said to me, to my face, I've never been with someone as big as you. And that was like, whoa, okay. Um, and I'm not interested in folks who are bigger than me. And I'm like, okay, good to know. Cool. That's fine. Um, or, or, you know, just like bringing size into the equation. I'm not, you know, and people will put this on their profile. I'm not interested in fat people, you know, like they'll, they'll put that right out there. Sometimes some won't, but, or they'll like mask it into, I'm only interested in people with healthy bodies or who are fit, you know, and they'll use these kind of coded language. There's a term that I've been seeing more often. uh, It's it's abbreviated as HWP. It's height, weight, proportional. Yes. um, Which is kind of like the new way to couch that. Mm -hmm. Like it's basically saying we're okay if you're fat, but only the acceptable kind of fat, the kind of fat. Only if you have big boobs and big butt. Yeah. (laughs) And, and yeah, small waist, big thighs, big butt, big boobs. Um, you know, skinny arms, like Michelle Obama arms, otherwise, like, and yeah, no, it's, it's the same kind of like fat injustice that comes up in casting quote unquote inclusive bodies in, you know, modeling positions or for catalogs or for television ads and all the fat folks kind of look a little bit similar. Mm -hmm. Um, Unless the company has gone through specific, a specific process to stop that from happening. Um, I want to kind of get back to what you were talking about, about you know, the being fetishized while pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really changes how you interact with language uh, when, you're, when you're in a category that's fetishized because you don't, you, you don't get to just take people's words at face value. You have to be hypervigilant is the best term. I mean, it's, generally associated with like anxiety or mental illness, but it, it describes how you have to kind of read between the lines, right? Does this comment mean that they're attracted to me because they share my interests and they think I'm funny or are they attracted to me because they just as happily like put my head on their mantle as, as something, (laughs) something to be collected. Match in the bedpost. Yeah. Right. Um, And like my experience with that, um, I'm, I'm sad, but also not too sad. Uh, and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. I'm sad that I have such an easier time dating online as far as like getting matches, having people who are interested in me first, um, getting, you know, engagement with people since I've presented pretty exclusively femme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also the colorful hair helps too. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's hard because people don't come out and say, hey, I'm a bigot. Hey, I'm a chaser. Hey, I'm, I'm fetishizing you. You have to kind of break that down into, okay, well, why are they saying this? Why are they saying this this early in the conversation? You know, dissecting their word choice. And that's exhausting. Yeah, absolutely. And I've definitely, I think there may be a level of trauma behind some comments or things that people assume to be um, a, a, um, preferences, you know, and I, I, because I know I've dealt with it. Like I grew up with abusive men in my mother's life, my sisters, my older sister's lives, so many abusive men. And so for the longest time, I thought, I don't want to date anyone who's bigger or taller than me because I couldn't take them on in a fight and not really fully grasping the fact that like, 
okay, someone who's smaller than you can still do a lot of damage mentally, can still abuse the fuck out of you, even if they're not hitting you, even if they're not physically abusive. And it took probably until my late 20s, I think it was like 27, 28, before I started dating people who were even taller than me. And I'm five, six. Like, I was dating a lot of short guys. Like, like I was dating a lot of short people. Um, but like, so I, I had to get over this level of trauma that that was causing sizeism in my preferences and it was causing bigotry in my dating uh, and and not even really fully grasping what that meant or why I was doing it. And so I don't know if, uh, you know, going into someone saying like, I, I don't want to date men or I don't want to date people with phalluses might have something to do with past trauma relating to you know to rape or or uh, or sexual assault you know and and so that's not really a first date conversation to have and it's also sometimes maybe fully uh subconscious too which is really interesting so i think it, it takes some work to even understand your own biases and therapy probably helps, but, but also like really kind of examining why. And it did take me a while for me to understand, like, why wouldn't I date or even feel kind of attracted to someone who was six, five, you know, <laughs> like, because, um, because I felt fear. I felt, uh, and that's phobia, right? I felt a total fear of someone hurting me who was taller than me. And I realized that's kind of ridiculous, but it took me a while. Yeah, and and I think there's a lot of parallels. Um, so, like the question of disclosure comes up, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and Dora spoke about this around like the the trans panic defense and and stuff like that, which is kind of like the the more extreme example, right? I, I mean, I wish it, I wish it was extreme. I haven't looked to see how many trans women have been killed this year, but you know, not it's, zero. Yeah, it's yeah, more than zero, which is that many too many. Yep, um, yep. But you, you know, I have a very similar experience dating while trans as dating while disabled. When do I disclose? Right. Yeah. Um, I tend to err on the side of earlier rather than later. Um, and my reasoning behind that is if you don't want to date me once you know that, I would rather the trash take itself out early. Right. Mm-hmm. Than have some kind of emotional connection and have it evaporate because I'm trans, because I have mental illness, because I walk with a cane, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so in some ways that closes me off from being with people who don't realize that there's a human behind that label, who that small period between meeting and when you might otherwise disclose would convince them, oh, I don't actually have a problem with this label. I don't get access to those people because I'm choosing to interact in a way that makes me feel safer. Um, It also makes me less safe because, you know, I'm publicly saying, Hey, I'm trans, right? Right. There's a lot of people out there who, you know, that's, that's a checklist of somebody they want to do a violence to. Right. Um, So like I am unlikely to be that open if I'm going out to a bar to meet somebody. Right. Right? You're not going to be wearing the, buttons or whatever right like leave, leave the aura at home leave the horns at home all mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so i had i had one last item on fetishization i want to jump back to that real yeah. quick because i remember i put a note down on this and i wanted to bring it up because it was a couple of really good lines 
Um, so one of the lines that Dora had in her episode, which is episode 48, by the way, okay. I found it. <laughs> um, she was talking about how fetishization is about um, having sex be for the person who's fetishizing mm-hmm. rather than with the person who's fetishizing. Yes. Right? It, it turns sex from a collaborative experience or a communicative experience to a performance by one party for the benefit of another. Absolutely. Yeah. What do I get out of this? You know, like, and honestly, a lot of folks should be asking that in general when it comes to like dating and sex is what's in it for me? Like, yeah. What is in it for me? (laughs) I I think, I think my favorite comment in the episode actually is one that you had and it was Dora was talking about how a lot of fetishization is similar to, you know, cis men who want to have sex the way that they see on in porn mm-hmm. and uh your your response was that's like learning how to drive by watching fast and the furious movies yep yep and good, i just not a good method yeah i i got a giggle out of that <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely yeah we, we say that a lot at work you know just because i work at a sex toy store and so many folks especially younger folks right who, who haven't had a lot of sex yet or a lot of experience sexually yet um they the only place to learn because a lot of our public schools are failing folks when it comes to sex education is the internet and the internet is wonderful and horrible you know it's a blessing and a curse and there's so much out there and there's so much to educate oneself but so much of it isn't realistic and isn't you know we're not talking about how vaginas actually look we're talking about how there's this like you know prettified version of what a vulva looks like. And I said, yeah, I even just said vagina and that's not what I meant. I meant vulva, you know, like what vulvas look like on porn. And those are the only ones who are really like privy to see, like they're just, there aren't a lot of examples of what real human beings look like even, or just bodies in general. Well, for, for commonly consumed porn, right? Like yeah, if, if we're yeah. talking about, I, I know I know that you've mentioned Erica Lust before, mm-hmm. right? Crash mm-hmm. Pad, right? There's a lot of ethical porn makers out there where you see a larger variety of bodies, a lot of larger variety of gender expressions, but much like the educational information that tends to be passed over because it's in some ways less accessible on purpose. Mm-hmm. People should mm-hmm. be paid for their work. But, you know, the the porn hubification of the internet has made it so that what's easy to find and easy to access reinforces this negative stereotype and this negative set of beliefs and behaviors. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, well, and I guess and we didn't even talk about porn, but I think that porn is making that fetishization of of trans women so much more prevalent. And it's it's interesting because, like, there's this line where is having a lot more trans women be porn actresses and porn stars in some way normalizing trans women but then it's also totally um and like the 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 love of trans women the acceptance of trans women right is is it in any way helpful to the cause or is it only fetishizing I would say that having more fat women is in porn is incredibly important. Having more real bodies in porn is incredibly important. And having more black folks in porn is incredibly important when you're not just fetishizing them. So it's, it's so hard because there is this one kind of type of person that is so often in porn and this one type of body that's so often in porn. And I want there to be a lot more variety, but at what point are you just, 
fetishizing a body or are you promoting diversity? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like it's it's the same or it's a similar conversation around porn in general, right? Mm-hmm. How do you make porn be empowering and not objectifying? Yeah. And often it's it's about agency. Agency is one of my favorite words in social justice. So I'm gonna mm-hmm. wax poetic on this. Um, if the person who is in the center of the camera is the focus of all the attention, if they are in a position where what's going on is affirming to them, is is meeting their needs, and they are the subject and not just the object, then yes, it can be ethical, it can be important, it can be mm-hmm. representation. But the vast majority of porn is built for the cis male gaze, um, which for those who have not heard that term before, um, designed to appeal to traditional interests of cis men. Right. Um, but you know, one of the one of the neat things about the pandemic is it's increased the number of independent sex workers who are out there who have OnlyFans or many vids or AP clips or you know, just for fans. Like my Twitter feed at any given time is like thirty percent sex workers, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and it's it's funny because they're starting to to kind of cross over into other media. Uh, Nicola Ofan is a trans woman who does porn, uh, and she had a she had a um, what's it called a TikTok. Sorry, I'm one of the olds that doesn't get this new <laughs> newfangled technology. Uh, had a TikTok where she did what she refers to as the filthy Frank voice. Um, which you should Google it because it's hilarious. Um, but it's a way for her to self-parody while also like acknowledging, hey, this voice that I use while I'm doing porn isn't the only vocal range that I have, mm-hmm. right? And it's it's creating this platform where, you know, performers, sex workers, directors even can express things in a way that that we haven't seen in porn previously. So yes, it can be affirming. At the same time, it can be really damaging because right. as long as most trans porn is sitting under a slur that's a porn category, uh, people are going to think that when they think about trans people because right. that's usually their first exposure. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. So to kind of wrap up this discussion, how can we as poly folks or ethical non-monogamous folks in the community and, and who are part of a community be more inclusive to trans folks i i would i would probably say inviting should be the inviting instead of inclusive okay how can we be more inviting and welcoming to trans folks so there's there's little things and there's big things little things are the kind of like passive acknowledgement that trans folks exist and are going to have to go through certain things in order to exist in a space and doing so is not going to necessarily out them or make them feel other or like you know, they're having to wear a special symbol or a purple aura. So it, that's things like if you're doing a welcome circle for a play party and people are saying their pronouns, say your fucking pronouns. Right. I don't care. I don't care if you're cis. I don't care if you, you know, believe that we can all assume your pronouns. Just say them. It literally costs you nothing. Um, if you're at an event with name tags or if you're providing name tags, try and find name tags with pronouns on them. If your name tag doesn't have a pronoun line, write it in. Make sure people are aware that defining how you should refer to somebody is something everybody has to do. It's normalized. something that yeah. Yeah, normalized, exactly. Um, and the bigger things are along the lines of 
community accountability and meeting people who have similar identities to you who do shitty things where they are and calling them out on it, right? Making the space proactively inclusive, proactively inviting, um, making sure that it is apparent and communicated when there is an incident around really any kind of bigotry, but um, specifically for inviting more queer and trans people, um, it's, it's about being very honest and transparent about what the consequences are when you are a transmissive, when you are harmful to the trans community. Totally. Okay, cool. Do you have anything that you would like to plug as far as resources for folks who want to learn more, who want to be educated and who don't want to, you know, fuck up? <laughs> I didn't prepare that ahead of oh, time. Okay. I'll that's try okay. and send it to you before you publish this episode. <laughs> sure. Okay. That will, yeah. So I'll be putting that, that those kind of resources in our show notes and our episode breakdown on polyamoryuncensored.wordpress.com. But yeah, otherwise I think we have a lot here and hopefully it will cause a lot of conversations and, you know, like um, things that we can talk about potentially in the future again. So um, yeah, yeah, this was great. This is very educational and enlightening. And I hope a lot of people get some good, you know, things to think about from this. And I got to talk a bunch and didn't have to listen to my own voice. So it was awesome. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the pod. Thank you so much for uh, educating us all and, and calling us in, which is super helpful. It's really nice. I like that. <laughs> You're very welcome. I mean, I, like, like I said in the call-in, right? You are somebody who I care about my relationship with you. I care about your role in the community. Um, I feel like you do a lot of good things. And I feel like that's just something that may have been a blind spot for you. And we all have our blind spots. And I apologize for the fact that's ableist language. I couldn't think of a better term in the moment. Um, but often we don't know that there are spots that we're missing until somebody tells us. And with that being said, it should never be on a marginalized person to point out when something shitty happens. We should be examining how we communicate on purpose to minimize our own harm. But it's, yeah, I mean, it, I just, I felt like a call-in was probably the best way to handle it. And, you know, you took it very well. And and I'm very happy with the steps you've taken since then. Um, I feel very affirmed both by this episode and from your response. So I I really just appreciate the whole experience. Awesome. Well, and I do want to, you know, welcome always uh, when folks hear us talking uh, on this podcast, you know, when we fuck up. And I don't say if I say when, cause that happens. Right. And, and I do, I often like to say, you don't know what you don't know. Right. Like, so uh, when we fuck up, I do, I welcome folks come and talk to us and, and ask questions and give us feedback and, and tell us how you feel about things because it is helpful. It is. And even if it's just planting that seed so that we know going into the future, how to be better, we always, I, I hope we always want to be better. And I hope that our audience wants to be better. And yeah, it's always a good thing. Cool. Uh, can I, can I be like shameless self plug time? A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So for any of the uh, cis folks who you know, earlier wanted to opt for the pay $50 to all of your trans <laughs> friends. Um, my Venmo is at Ilde, I-L-D-E, Leaf, L-E-A-F. Uh, my cash app is dollar sign, Ilde, I-L-D-E, Leaf, L-E-A-F. Um, 
You can find me on Twitter at Ildi underscore Leaf. I'm not going to spell that a third time. And I'm an um, infrequent contributor to the Chronic Sex Chat um, podcast, which you can find on Twitter at, uh, at Chronic Sex Chat, um, spelled exactly how it sounds, or at chroniccex.org. Um, if you're looking for another source of some trans resources written by uh, a trans individual, my partner, uh, who goes by SugarCunt, um, at SugarCNT on Twitter, uh, and their website is sugarcuntrights.com. Uh, it's been kind of inactive since 2019, but they've still written quite a bit on being trans, dating while trans, et cetera. That is an awesome name also. Just got to call that out. That's awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, we are going to wrap things up. And uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> thank you so much for inviting me. I really enjoyed this. Bye. Bye. And that is it from us at Polyamory Uncensored. We have been Lindsay Miller and Katie Williams. We'd like to thank podcast husband Rob for being our sound engineer. And thank you, Lindsay, for editing this podcast so that we sound smart. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Polyamory Uncensored. Contact us at polyamoryuncensored at gmail.com if you have a listener question or a comment. And if you'd like to support us at all, you can send us a monthly contribution at anchor.fm slash polyamoryuncensored and simply click on the support this podcast button. If you'd like to support the podcast with a one-time contribution, we've set up a PayPal link to make it super easy. Thank you for your support in any amount at paypal.me slash polyamoryuncensored. We hope you've enjoyed this episode and remember, we love you. Bye.